on back in with your uh, beverages and take a seat. We'll continue with our time uh, together this morning. My name's Brad. I'm part of the teaching and leadership team here at Jericho. And this morning, we come to the part in the book of Revelation where most people stop reading the book and where most pastors stop preaching the book. Usually the series on Revelation finish after the nice part to the seven churches and then they go on, you know, uh, um, and just stop that. But in it, we're to the juicy parts now of Revelation, like the good parts. Uh, but these parts, they are tricky and they're demanding and they're challenging for us because we're into the part of the book of Revelation with all of the numbers and the symbols and the stuff that happens that we kind of have to work a little bit harder to make sense of. But part of the challenge of the interpretation in the book of Revelation is not necessarily that the message of Revelation is so complicated and difficult to understand, but I think part of the challenge of Revelation is that it's actually difficult for us to hear what's being said. And it's difficult to kind of face up to some of the implications of what the Spirit is saying to us. But we're gonna forge ahead we're going to reclaim the book of Revelation, and I believe that we're going to uh, be able to hear the truth that the Spirit of God wants to say to each of us in this place today. Uh, not only to you and I, but a spoken this word to his church down throughout the ages and through the globe. And so we believe that uh, it, all truth is God's truth and that it has power and, and effectiveness. So you may remember that in the book of Revelation, it's written by the Apostle John, and it's written as a letter to his seven churches in what's now uh, the area, the country of Turkey, and he's writing to them from prison. And he's been sent to prison because of his refusal to participate in the required first century civic duty of empire worship or emperor worship. Because you see, John lives in a time in history when the church and the state are not friendly with each other. They're complete odds with each other, in fact, and we're just living out our simple mission statement as Jericho Ridge as being a disciple of Jesus who embodies God's love everywhere we go would get you killed in the Roman Empire. And so John is writing from prison. He's writing in a style called apocalyptic literature. And this is a style that is uh, very foreign to us because we just don't have anything like it in our contemporary world today in Western culture. But one of the key characteristics of this style is this use of vivid imagery to convey ideas and impressions and emotion and truth. And the other part of it is the use of symbolism like numbers and other things to convey meaning and truth to his readers. So let's look quickly at where we've come from just as we settle in again because that'll help us set today's text in better perspective. So you might recall that in Revelation chapter one, we have the first uh, apocalypse, the first unveiling, which is what that word means. It's a vision of Jesus that we're given. And we see Jesus as king of the universe. Unlike any other king that we've ever seen or known, he's cosmic in his radiance and in his power, in his glory, in the scope of his power. He holds all of the world and history in his hand, and he has always existed. He's eternal. He always will exist. 
He exists outside and beyond our human sense of time. And we're told that he alone holds the keys to death and hell and the grave. There's nothing beyond the scope of his authority and influence and power. And so John reminds us of this because a lot of times we get this picture in our mind when we think about Jesus, we think gentle Jesus, meek and mild. You know, he was probably in all of the pictures, he looks fairly white and he has this white long robe and he has this blue sash across and long beard and stuff and he wanders around just kind of as a nice guy in the first century world. And John says, hey, We need to reset our imagery in the right perspective and understand, yes, Jesus came to and walked among us nearly 2,000 years ago, but he is also the second person of the triune God who rules the universe, almighty in power, perfect in wisdom, righteous in judgment, overflowing with steadfast love. He's sovereign. He rules over all things, both the visible and the invisible. And so John just starts the book there in chapter one and says, let's just remind ourselves who the vision is of and from. So that's the first unveiling we see. The second apocalypse that we see is the unveiling of the church. And he writes those letters to the seven congregations and talks to them about the things that Jesus cares about and wants to see and desires uh, and the challenges that they and us and other churches through time have faced. And he talks to them about the temptations that they face and the issues uh, that they're going to wrestle with and are wrestling with, temptations to compromise, the lure of wealth and privilege, how to do things that are difficult, like speak to another person in community and say, the way in which you are living is offside and needs to change. And so there's a lot of complexity that he brings to that. He talks about uh, lures and things to stay away from and things to embrace. And we see yet again that as a church, we're nourished and renewed as God's people as we gather regularly to glorify God and to strengthen each other for the vision of work and service that he's called us to. And so John reminds us again that this process of God's intervention in history is being worked out in and through his people, the church. And then last week, Pastor Wally led us through chapters four and chapters five, and we get this cosmic scene again of a worship gathering around the throne. And that worship gathering didn't stop when we all walked out of the banquet hall last weekend. It didn't stop when I started preaching. It didn't stop when Megan and the team was leading us in worship and song. And and this picture is to give us this, again, uh, awareness of the deepest and most truly real part of reality, that the control room of the universe, the throne room. And I was very moved last weekend when we were together and when we were worshiping in song and when Pastor Wally was teaching and I just felt like God was speaking to me and saying, hey Brad, just get that picture in your mind again of the throne and I just want to remind you, there is a throne and you ain't on it. (laughs) That's my job, that's where I sit. You know, there's a throne in, in the life of Jericho Ridge, and Jesus occupies it. It's his church. There's a throne in my heart, in my life, 
and that's for him to occupy. And so it was just a wonderful, powerful reminder for me, and I hope for you as well, last weekend. And it's important then to keep these three unveilings or apocalyptic revelations that we've uncovered so far in our mind as we go deeper into the book of Revelation. Because otherwise, it feels like it just gets disconnected from what we see and what we know so far, those anchor points. And that, I think, is the danger point. And that's where it becomes sensationalistic, and that's where people get into all kinds of like, well, this clearly means that, and all kinds of weird, weird stuff, and becomes misused or misconstrued. Because remember, John's writing to real people in real places, and he wants to be helpful to them. He doesn't want to make it so mysterious that they can't understand what's going on. But in order to be helpful to them, he has to answer a pivotal question. And that question is this. Okay, so if Jesus is Lord and not Caesar, and if the church is the environment where God's good purposes are being worked out in the lives of his people to grow us into a people who are holy, and if Jesus is right now seated in the control room of heaven, then why does life suck so much sometimes? Like, why? What's wrong with the world if all of those things are true? How could it be? Why are there people being bombed in Mogadishu? Why are people in Africa with albinism being hunted for their body parts? Like, why does sickness and death still appear to have the upper hand? Like, if Jesus is on the throne right now, why can't he do something about that stuff? Why are things not as they should be? And we're going to see something of an explanation for this in, Rome, in Revelation chapter 6 and 7. So turn there with me in your Bibles or on your devices, Revelation chapter 6. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. I'm not going to put the text up on the side screen, so I want you to get in the habit of engaging with the Scripture. Uh, and so I'm going to read through all of chapter 6 and then chapter 7 as well. So track with us here for a few minutes. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. John says, As I watched, the Lamb broke the first of the seven seals on the scroll. I heard one of the four living beings say with a voice like thunder, come. And I looked up and I saw a white horse standing there and its rider carried a bow and a crown was placed on his head and he rode out to win many battles and gain the victory. When the lamb broke the second seal, I heard the second living being say, come. These are the beings around the throne. Then another horse appeared, a red one. Its rider was given a sword, a mighty sword and the authority to take away peace from the earth. And there was war and slaughter everywhere. When the lamb broke the third seal, I heard the living being say, come. And I looked up and I saw a black horse and its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice from among the four beings say, a loaf of bread or three loaves of barley will cost a day's pay and don't waste the oil and the wine. When the lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the fourth living being say, come. And I looked up and I saw a horse whose color was pale green and its rider was named Death and the companion was the grave. And these two were given authority over one quarter of the earth to kill with the sword with famine and disease and wild animals. 
When the lamb broke the fifth seal, I heard under the altar the souls of all who had been martyred for the word of God and for being faithful in their testimony. They shouted to the Lord and said, Sovereign Lord, how holy and true are you, but how long before you judge the people who belong to this world and avenge our blood for what they have done to us? And a white robe was given to each of them, and they were told to rest a little longer until the full number of their brothers and sisters, the fellow servants of Jesus who were to be martyred yet had joined them. As I watched, the lamb broke the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake and the sun became black like a dark cloth and the moon became like red as blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth like green figs falling from a tree shaken by a strong wind. The sky was rolled up like a scroll and all of the mountains and islands were moved from their places. And then everyone, the kings of the earth, the rulers, the generals, the wealthy, the powerful, every slave, every free person, all hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they cried out to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, it's so bad. Hide us from the face of the one who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to survive. And then I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds so they did not blow on the earth or the sea or even on any tree. And I saw another angel coming up from the east carrying a seal of the living God. And he shouted to those four angels who had been given the power to harm the land and the sea, wait, don't harm the land or the sea or the trees until we place the seal of God on the foreheads of his servants. And I heard how many were marked with the seal of God. 144,000 were sealed from all the tribes of Israel, from Judah, from Reuben, from Gad, from Asher, from Naphtali, from Manasseh, from Simeon, from Levi, from Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. And as I saw this, I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and every tribe, and every people, and every language, and they were standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb, they were clothed in white robes, they held palm branches in their hands, and they were shouting with a mighty shout, salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. And all of the angels were standing around the throne, and all of the elders and the four living beings, and they fell before the throne with their faces to the ground, and they worshiped God, and they sang. And they said, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and strength and honor and power belong to our God forever and ever, amen. And then one of the 24 elders asked me, who are these who are clothed in white? Where did they come from? And I said to him, sir, you are the one who knows. And he said to me, these are the ones who died in the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb and made them white. That's why they stand in front of God's throne and they serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will give them shelter. And they will never again be hungry or thirsty. They will never be scorched by the heat of the sun, for the Lamb on the throne will be their shepherd. And He will lead them to springs of life-giving water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That is a lot of stuff that happens in two chapters. Heavy stuff, earth-shaking kind of things. So we need to go back 
to the beginning and unpack it image by image. It's helpful for us to hear kind of the totality of it, and in fact, not all of the seals have yet been broken. That happens in chapter eight. But to understand what's happening in each event helps us understand a little bit more about it. So we see the scroll with the seven seals on it, and Pastor Wally reminded us uh, last weekend that the scroll is the scroll of history. The scroll contains God's plan and His purpose for His kingdom coming and His will being done here in this world on earth as it is in heaven. And there's only one person in the entirety of the universe who has the authority necessary to execute that purpose and plan and to put that scroll into effect on the stage of history. And that is Jesus. But the seals are not there to keep or prevent us from knowing what is inside of the scroll. Remember, on, in chapter five, we see that the scroll is written on both sides, on the inside and the outside, so you can see what is written on it already. But a seal is there to indicate ownership of something. Historians remind us that in the first century, Documents were sealed not to prevent their contents from being opened or known, but to say that the one who authorized the open, the one who is authorized by the author of that seal, of that scroll, can open them. And so it's a, it's a statement of ownership and authority. This is from, for example, the king or Caesar, and that even carried through into the Middle Ages. And we kind of even carried that idea through with our signature, like I'm writing this, and this is, this is something that I've genuinely authored. I'm going to sign it. So it indicates ownership. But in Revelation 6, we see the seals get opened or broken one at a time. And as we see them opening, we begin to see the meaning of our text. And that is this. The big picture is when God's purposes and plans for history are put in motion, things begin to happen. When we pray, as Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom, God, would it come? May your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. God responds to that prayer. The initiation of this in chapter 6, verse 1, comes from one of the angelic beings around the throne saying, come, it's a, it's a prayer. God, would you put in motion the things of your purpose and your heart for history? But there are also other responses to God's unfolding movement in history. Not everyone and everything joyfully and willingly cooperates with God's purposes. Not all of humankind, not all of the unseen world, submits willingly to God's plans and purposes. In fact, some passively and some actively resist them. Certainly in the spiritual realm, we know this is true. The Bible is not unclear that Satan and his evil principalities and demonic powers are actively trying to block and thwart God's purposes and plans in history. And not only at a macro level is this happening, this is happening at micro level as well. It's happening in your life. It's happening in our city. It's happening in your home and family. It's happening in your workplace. It's happening in the church. And so to help us understand and explain a little bit more about how this is rolling itself out, John uses a graphic image of four horsemen. 
the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Daryl Johnson's helpful in his commentary on Revelation, and he says the four horsemen represent the kinds of things that happen when Jesus and his kingdom begin to press into the world. Not that Jesus' coming causes all of this misery and terror that we're, we read about and that we'll see unfold, but when Jesus and His kingdom, when the Lamb and His way come, immediately there is resistance and opposition, and that resistance to it and to God's purposes results in misery and in terror. And John's going to detail some very specific ways in which human history has organized itself to resist the accomplishment of God's purpose and plans. We see in Revelation 6, the four living creatures around the throne, they call out to God. Almost every uh, initiation in this sequence starts with a prayer. God, would you come? Would your, would your will be done in history as it is on heaven? And so then the first seal is opened, and Jesus begins to work out His plans and purposes. And immediately, there's opposition. The first horse it's pictured as a white horse. And so, sometimes when we read through uh, the book of Revelation, you think, oh, maybe this is Jesus. Like, after all, He's described later on in Revelation as seated on a white horse in Revelation chapter 19, uh, and He also wears a crown. But this horse is different. This horse is the language that's used to describe it is in quite stark contrast to the description that Pastor Wally reminded us about last weekend in chapter 4 and chapter 5. The lamb wins by sacrificial love, not by brute force. And so the language around this white horse should signal for us that this is not Jesus sitting on His throne. This is an opposition. This is like um, the Scripture uses other, other uh, language to help us understand. Sometimes the devil disguises himself to look like uh, an angel of light. And so this white horse, uh, in Revelation chapter 9, verse 7, demonic forces are portrayed as horses ready to go into battle, and they have crowns on their head. And so the first horse represents conflict and conquest. And notice that the crown on its head is placed there. If it was Jesus, Jesus would already be wearing the crown. He doesn't need it to be placed on His head. But the crown that's placed on this rider and on this horse is, is a crown that has been given to it. In other words, evil is not in ultimate control or charge of how history will play itself out. It does not get to wear the crown. Evil is not on the throne. Evil is very, very real, but evil is also on a leash. And we're going to come back to this notion later on in Revelation where it becomes clearer for us yet again with some other pictures. But right now, we just simply need to note this horseman and what they bring to the human uh, condition and to our world is not happy stuff. So this first horse is conflict and conquest. The second horse is blood red, and it says it takes peace from the earth, and it immediately accompanied by war and slaughter. And certainly we've seen this through human history. 
that even in the 20th century and even in our day and time, there's much blood, shedding of blood that is counter to the purposes and plans that God would have. So the second horse is blood red. The rider on the third horse is depicted as having a scale in his hand. And what he weighs out what's necessary to buy the basic essentials for food, uh, for life, a loaf of bread. It costs an entire day's wages just to get not even full provisions for you or for your family. Simple necessities. And so this horse is scarcity and famine. Simple necessities have escalated in cost by tenfold, and they're just out of reach of people. And we certainly see this playing itself out in our world today. We certainly see greed and injustice creating conditions in our world which have led to hunger and famine, the denial of basic human necessities for people in places like Syria or like South Sudan. And this part of this is, again, just human machinations of greed and things that are, um, things that are actively creating resistance to God's kingdom coming and His perfect will being done. The fourth horse is death. It's the only rider given a name. And the text here says nothing about what's in his hand, but uh, he's often depicted as carrying some kind of Sith or sickle. It's where we get this Halloween costume notion of the Grim Reaper from. Uh, but it's really no joke. It's no laughing matter. Uh, the, the four seals that are opened in this depict all kinds of ravaging of human condition and human flourishing that emerge if we choose not to go the way of the Lamb. The first seal, there's just greater conflicts and conquests that embed themselves in our own hearts and in the world. The second seal, greater and greater levels of violence that escalate as an attempt to sol solve problems. Seal three, greater injustices and hunger that, that begin to ravage humanity. And seal four, greater sickness and death. And so Jesus is establishing his lordship and his reign over history, but as he works it out, he is both passively ignored and actively resisted. Creation's crying out. The beings around the throne are crying out, come, Lord Jesus. And immediately, forces who do not want him and his kingdom rise up in opposition. And so the four horsemen of the apocalypse try to take Jesus and his people and his plans and humanity out and down. And so again, it becomes clear that this isn't some kind of uh, futuristic apocalyptic scene that we kind of wait for in some way. John is saying to his people, hey, this kind of stuff is happening right here, right now. It's happening in your cities where you live. It's happening with the Roman Empire and the way that they are operating so long as violence is glorified and marketed, the world's going to continue to experience it. So long as economics are enacted in a way where the rich get richer and the people who are poor are left further and further behind, injustice and famine and hunger, and all of these things are going to be with us in the world. And so John is painting a picture of reality for us. And then we might think to ourselves, oh, well, that's really stark. Like, those horsemen are scary. I'm just so glad I'm going the way of the Lamb. Like, surely I'll be spared from that kind of stuff, right? Like, Team Jesus, yay, go Team Jesus. 
Well, if you keep looking, when the Lamb breaks the fifth seal, we see, in fact, that just because you belong to Team Jesus doesn't mean that you get a free pass. In fact, in seal number five, we have a picture of those who, because they are on Team Jesus and have identified with His Lordship of them, face the reality of persecution and, in fact, are killed for their fidelity to Jesus. And Jesus Himself said this. In Matthew chapter 24, he's talking to his disciples and he says, you're going to be arrested, persecuted, killed. You'll be hated all over the world simply because you are my followers. And so we begin to see that there are lots of theological systems and ideas and commentators that have a notion of escapism built into them. A notion that, well, bad things are going to happen two people in the world, but like, I'm going to be faithful to Jesus, I'm going to be a good person, and therefore, I'm going to be spared from all of those horrible things that John talks about in Revelation. The Lamb breaks the fifth seal, and the first thing that we see is those who have been martyred for following Jesus, those who have been persecuted, those who have been marginalized and who have lost their lives. They've resisted to the point of death for their faith. And so I wish that I could stand here and tell you that the Bible says that if you're faithful to Jesus, you get spared from all the kinds of bad stuff, the horrible things happening in our world in the present and in the future, but it's just simply not the case. When the church, when God's people seek to follow Jesus and be faithful as a witness, they get caught in the crosshairs of the unfolding drama of history. And there is a price to pay for that. There's a price to be paid for following Jesus. And some, even across our globe today, pay with their lives. We, we, we don't spend a lot of time thinking or talking about praying or standing with the persecuted church around the world, but it's a reality even in our world today where many, many, many people still experience, many of our brothers and sisters in the faith experience incredible persecution and hardship, and they pay. There's a price to be paid for following Jesus. And for John's readers, this was a very, very real possibility. For John himself, he had experienced it. He had walked that road. He was arrested, persecuted, thrown onto the island of Patmos. He had seen many of the other disciples of Jesus be killed for taking a stand for Jesus. But for us, because we live in a day and in a time where that seems very distant from us, we think, well, boom, that, that word must be for other people. But I want you to think about the possibility or a way where you might experience a negative consequence for following Jesus. Where would there be an example? Just maybe shout one or two out. What would be a way that you might experience challenge or hardship or negative consequences for choosing to follow Jesus? Sandy. Yeah, some relational division. Yeah, yeah. What else? Other examples you can think of? 
academic advancement, yeah? Yeah. Opportunities closed off. You know, you're radical about, that. you're getting too radical about this. Yeah, yeah. What do you think, Michael? Yeah, sometimes our words can get us in trouble, right? Like that was what Sandy was saying. He made a bold declaration, a witness of that. And I think there's lots of examples that we can think of in our culture. We might, you might be in a workplace environment where you'll come to the place of saying, you know, I cannot in good conscience follow through on this directive from you as my employer because of, the, of a faith perspective that I take. You may experience what other saints have known throughout the millennium, that following the Lamb is costly. Maybe you're a student, and you speak up on an issue, or you articulate a difference of opinion on a topic because of your Christian convictions. And in that classroom and by those in authority, you might be ridiculed or ostracized or isolated. You know, at some point in your journey of following Jesus, it is likely to cost you something. And it cost many of John's readers much more than it costs us. But this is the picture that John is reminding us of as this fifth seal is getting broken open. That just because you say, I follow Jesus, does not exempt you from trials, from persecution, and even from the loss of your life for naming the name of Jesus. And the sixth seal opens John speaks about an earthquake, and the sun becomes like a black cloth. The moon becomes like blood. Stars fall from the sky, like leaves falling from a tree in the strong storms this week. The sky itself is rolled up like a scroll. Notice the repeated use of the word like, 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 like. John is just, he's struggling for language to try and describe what it is that he's seeing here. So whatever these images of quaking of the cosmos are used in the Bible, and they're used in many other places, in the book of Ezekiel, and the book of Daniel, and the book of Zechariah, um, you know, heaven and earth will be shaken, all of those things. When we hear that language, it's used to portray a moment of massive crises, a, a moment where it's like the whole of the created order is shaking and, and is just in a, in a place of absolutely disastrous consequences. It's the natural, really the natural outcome of the progression of the first five seals. When we have greater and greater personal and national conflicts, greater and greater violence and wars, greater and greater persecution, greater and greater injustice and famine, greater sickness and death, we come to the very brink and the place where the whole creative order is just reared up against the Lamb. And so, really, the sixth seal is this place where John is describing self-rule gone horribly, horribly wrong. Daryl Johnson puts it well against, here's where the, um, all of the apocalyptic movies, both secular and religious, have it wrong. The end is not caused by some meteor coming from the sky and causing havoc. The end is caused by God finally saying, oh, oh, humanity, you, you want to be your own God. Oh, okay, 
why don't you be God? I'm just going to step back, and uh, I'm the one that holds all the universe together by my very being. Let's just see how you guys do at that. Try holding that all together. And that's not our role as humanity. And so if we decide that we want to take that on and take it over, we can't hold it together. And the very created order itself begins to disintegrate. This is, this is finally what the wrath of God, the wrath of the Lamb in chapter 6, verse 17 looks like. Not the throwing of thunderbolts by God who's just massively somehow really angry at humanity, but simply saying, oh, that's the way you'd like to go. Well, I'll leave you to it then. You can have your own way. And it's at this moment, at the end of chapter 6, that we have a pause in the action of the seal breaking, and it picks up again in chapter 8. And then in John's vision, the focus shifts, and it moves to the answer to the question of all of these people going, it's gotten so bad, I just wish a mountain would fall on me and crush me and put me out of my misery. And they say, who can stand? Like, who can actually live under that kind of horrific condition? And John's vision shifts to the focus to the answer that question. Who can make it through all of this? Like, who, who can actually, if some of these things are working themselves out in our world here and now today, like, who can actually make it or not back off when the cost of discipleship is increasing? And here's the intriguing thing about the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation unfolds in what John sees next in his vision. It doesn't unfold in a chronology of what happens next. And so part of our challenge in reading a book like Revelation is we just read it like another book. We're like, you start on the left-hand side. When you finish that, you flip another page. You read it left to right. You know, that, that's just sensible readership. But in Revelation... Commentators argue, and they agree actually, that chapter 7 happens chronologically before chapter 6 happens. So John sees the four angels at the four corners of the earth holding back these destructive forces. The number four, oh, that should clue us in again. What were there four of? Four is the number of totality, like the four corners of the world, the four uh, winds, all that type of stuff. And so... Um, this number four should take us back to the number of the horsemen, the four winds, the four horsemen. They all desire to harm those who align themselves with the way of the Lamb. And so these are the forces rising up against the inbreaking of the kingdom of God in history. But before they get to do their work, an angel says, hold on a minute. They don't get to do their work until we've done something. And that is place the seal of God on the forehead of those who are his servants. So who are his servants? Well, John hears a number, 144,000. What's up with the 144,000? And then when he turns, he sees a vast multitude that's too great to number. So again, that should indicate to us, remember in the, in the previous chapters, he heard a lion, he turned and he saw a lamb. And so John's trying to help us understand, again, we're not to take this 144,000 with a sense of mathematical precision and literalness, as if somehow uh, the first 144,000 people who died and went up to heaven filled it all up, and sorry, you were born in the 20th or 21st century, and so there's no room for you at all. 
No, the number 144,000 is a suspiciously tidy number. It's more like a symbol than a statistic. And uh, whenever you see the number 12 in the older New Testament, there's a lot of freight that gets carried with the number 12. So think of what are there 12s of in the, in the Old Testament? Tw 12 tribes of Israel. What are there 12 of in the New Testament? Apostles, disciples. And so we have 12 of the ancient original tribes of Israel listed, and we have 12 apostles who follow Jesus. 12 times 12, the whatever power, is 144,000. And so what John is trying to say is, this is a symbolic number that represents the completeness of all of the people who follow God and follow Jesus, made up of both Jews and Gentiles, because remember, in the first century, that was a big conflict. Could you actually be a follower of God and if you were a Gentile? Because you didn't share in the cultural background that the Jews did. And so what John is saying to the people here as his readers, they would be shocked to figure out, oh my word, John is telling us quite uh, clearly here that the, uh, the God's covenant people, it's not that His covenant people from Old Testament have been displaced or abolished or done away with, it's just that the hardwired definition, if you are only ethnically Jewish, is the only way you have a place in God's family, that's been abolished and done away with. And so John's vision broadens to include people from every nation, every tribe, every people, every tongue, every language gathered around the throne in worship. And John's saying to his listeners and to us, hey, heaven is the most multi-ethnic, multicultural, multiracial place that you can ever imagine because people from every corner of the globe are going to say yes to the wonderful invitation that I'm going to offer them through Jesus. And so it's an incredible picture of unity in God's family. But remember, John's telling us that they're sealed before the unsealing of the scroll, before they get caught in the crosshairs or the crunch of the tribulations. Remember what we said about the seal, like what it means to be sealed. If you seal something, it's a sign of ownership. In the first century world, slaves were actually sealed. They were marked on their heads, on their foreheads, as a sign of ownership. That way, if they ever got away, people would go, you belong to so-and-so. I can tell. That's their mark. Everybody knew who owned them. And so, in, in the New Testament, this language shows up again and again and again. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says, you are sealed in Christ with the Holy Spirit of promise. Chapter 4 of Ephesians, he says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. 2 Corinthians, God sealed us when he gave us his spirit. So the seal is a sign of ownership, a sign of connectivity. But just to be clear, a seal means that we are secure, not safe. We're not magically exempted from suffering. We're not to expect that, oh good, I've been sealed with the Spirit of God. That exempts me from any, and insulates me magically from some kind of uh, evil, even in a place here like Canada. But we are to expect that we are secure. In other words, the one to whom we belong can protect 
and guard that which he has placed in you as a deposit. We can choose to take ourselves out of his loving care, but the evil one cannot alter your eternal destiny. There's an incredible hope in the promise of perseverance that when you are sealed with the Spirit of God, it gives you a security knowing you're part of his family. So what does this actually mean for us today? All of the bizarre imagery and all of the things. I think the first thing we need to do is just re-examine our beliefs about suffering. Because when you and I do things like pray the Lord's Prayer, which seems so innocuous and just so tame, you know, kingdom come, may your will be done on earth here uh, as it is in heaven. When you pray that prayer, you should expect resistance to the answering of that prayer. See, we, we're so often thrown off balance when things are not perfect and tidy in our suburban little world and then we get angry at God. But when you engage in saying, God, I want to be a part of assisting and living under your rule and reign, your kingdom coming, your will being done here in my world, in my home, in my workplace, in Langley, in Surrey, in Abbotsford, as it is in heaven, then you are engaging in the battle and you should expect resistance. Because ultimately, God is not interested in making us comfortable. He is interested in making you holy. And sometimes, no, actually most times, often, that involves being well outside of the realm of perceived safety and comfort. Gang, that's why we do things like send teams to Guatemala, because we want to help you experience being outside of your comfort zone so that you actually begin to learn and grow in unique ways. But we're also there, make no mistake, to rise up and challenge the poverty and the apathy and the injustice that goes on for people who have disabilities in that culture. We're part of the resistance movement. <laughs> and Jesus says this so clearly in Matthew chapter 10. He says, all nations will hate you because you're my followers. It's not gonna go great for you. You're not gonna have it easy. We've had it easy as a church since Constantine for a lot of years in a place like Canada. But everyone who endures to the end, Jesus says in Matthew 10, will be saved. So we have to rethink some of our beliefs about suffering. Because a lot of times when it comes, we're shocked that it would ever touch our lives. And Revelation 6 and 7 says, you better believe and be prepared for it to touch you. The second element I want us to think about in this passage today is what we think about endurance. When we read through the book of Revelation, we see time and time again, there's tribulation, kingdom, and perseverance. Those three themes, they just link arms again and again and again. When the kingdom of God begins to break through, when it comes into your world, into your home, into your financial world, into your relationships, there will be pushback. John is not unclear on this. And so the great tribulation has been game on ever since Jesus inaugurated his kingdom. 
and it was on in John's day, and that's why he was in prison, and it's on in our day, and it's going to continue to be on until the day when Jesus returns. And so our role isn't to sort of read the book of Revelation and figure out, like, when is it going to happen, and how can I duck around it, and what's going to, and how long is it going to last, and all those types of things. Our job isn't to do any of that. It's to just simply think carefully about endurance. Because one of the key things we see in Revelation is a theology of community that we endure together. Look at the way John even writes at the introduction to his letter. I, John, I am your brother. I am your partner in suffering and in God's kingdom and in the patient endurance to which Jesus called us. The hard part about endurance is that it's just darn hard work. So where is God calling you to endure? Where is God asking and inviting you to grow in patience, in long-suffering? That's where I think the, the vision at the end of Revelation chapter 7 is actually one of the most comforting things that's spoken in the book of Revelation because it gives us the necessary resources to stand firm while we endure. In Revelation 7, 15, John says, and he who sits on the throne will give them, those who endure, shelter. He will protect them. They will never again be hungry and thirsty. They will never be scorched by the heat of the sun for the lamb on the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of life-giving water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You see, our call in times of challenge, in times of testing, in times of uncertainty, in times where it feels like we're always failing and falling is always the same. Return to the throne room. Get your sustaining grace yet again, not from trying harder, but from getting closer to the God who loves you and the God who desires to pour his strength and his resources and his life-giving protection and healing into your life. Megan and the team are going to come. They're going to lead us in songs of response. And as we do here at Jericho every weekend, we're going to move uh, to also a time of prayer. And I want to specifically say uh, a word for those who today might just be feeling completely weary may just be in a place in your life where you just say, ah, just the, the vicissitude of life is just wearing me down to the point where I just feel like I have no endurance. I got no gas in the tank. I'm just, I'm putting on a brave face, but I'm, I'm withering away inside, whether it's relationally, emotionally, spiritually, whatever that looks like. For you today, I want you to come for prayer, and we're going to pray specifically for you for endurance, and that God would continue to speak that over your life, and speak blessing, and speak nurture, and speak protection. Maybe some of you feel like you're under attack in areas of your life, and you just say, I just need to ask someone else to stand with me. We endure in this together. That's why God's given us community and His Spirit as well. And so I want you to not be too proud to say, I can tough it out together. You know, this endurance thing, I got it. Don't worry about it. Just humble yourself and say, you know what? I need to acknowledge my need of my brothers and sisters around me in this time.
Maybe for you here today, you've actually never taken that step and you've never said yes to Jesus. You've never said, you know what, those things in Revelation 1, I believe those now to be true. I see that Jesus is in fact king and Lord and ruling over all and that my first and primary response as a human being is to say yes to him. And so if that's you today, make sure you don't leave without praying and saying, God, I want to be a part of your family. I want to come underneath your protecting hand. I want to come and be part of the things that you're doing. Let's stand together, and Megan and the team will lead us in these three.